This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 32. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 15, let's begin at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I've found my lost sheep. I'll tell you in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead. He was alive again. He was lost and is found. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Have you ever lost anything that was valuable to you? Maybe as a child, it was your favorite toy. As a teenager, a treasured ring. As a college student, a 10-page history paper. Have you ever uh, lost your glasses or purse or wallet or car keys, cell phone, or a legal document? If you've ever lost anything of value, what do you do? If you're anything like me, you become obsessed with the search until you find it. That's what happened to me about eight years ago when I lost this. To most of you, this looks like an insignificant computer thumb drive. But on this thumb drive is housed all of my notes and research for my thesis project from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. In order for us to complete the doctorate, we had to write a final thesis project. And so I was able to study in numerous libraries from Boston, Massachusetts to Louisville, Kentucky, and parts and places in between. Whenever I came across something that I thought was valuable and germane to the topic, I would load it on this thumb drive. For reasons I cannot explain, this was the only place that I stored all the information. One day I lost this. To say that I was frantic is an understatement. I ripped my car to shreds. I turned my backpack upside down and inside out. I retraced my steps five times. I called my secretary, my wife, my brother, my neighbor, even complete strangers, asking them, have you seen a little silver thumb drive? I was in a library when I found it. It was tucked away in the smallest compartment of my computer bag, probably the last place I placed it. And when I found it, boy, was there relief and joy and excitement. I know that I was in a library, but boy, did I want to stand up and shout. I wanted to climb up on the table and do a little jig. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Because I was elated that I finally found that thumb drive. Why did I get so obsessed with searching for something that seemed so insignificant? I guess because I regarded it as valuable. Luke says that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As he makes his way to the sacred city, a large crowd gathers around him. The crowd is not only large, but it's also very diverse. In that crowd, you have the religious and the reprobate. Jesus doesn't seem offended. 
that the riffraff of society have gathered around him to hear what he had to say. Jesus is not all that upset that it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the thieves and the drunkards who gather around him. In fact, Jesus issued table fellowship to them, which in the first century communicated a level of acceptance and friendship. No, Jesus wasn't concerned. He wasn't upset. He wasn't even fearful that somehow their presence around him might tarnish his reputation. The only people that seemed to be upset about this were church people. Luke says that the church people of the first century, they began to mutter. You know, church people know how to mutter. Uh, Another word for that in the Old Testament is murmuring. God's people have always known how to mutter and murmur. They know how to stumble and stammer and mutter and murmur all over the place. So that's what the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the synagogue rulers, that's what they were doing. When they saw how the underbelly of society gathered around Jesus, they wondered, why does this man welcome sinners and why does he eat with them? i got to be honest with you that before I come down too hard on the religious establishment of the first century, I must confess that's a pretty good question. In fact, that's a great question. A question that must be asked to Jesus, and Jesus must answer it. Why is it, Jesus, that you hang out with the riffraff? Why is it that you allow the rough crowd of society to come and gather around you? Why is it that you extend table fellowship to them, which no other rabbi would have done in the first century? No one would have been caught dead associating with the people that you associate with, Jesus. Why do you hang out? with the underbelly of society? That's a good question. This is the question that's imposed at the beginning of Luke 15. And Jesus answers the question. He answers the question by giving a parable. I want you to notice in verse 3 that Jesus told them this parable. The word parable is singular. The passage I read for you is one parable. It is not three parables. A parable is a compound Greek word para and balo the word para means alongside the word balo means to throw so a parable is a story that is thrown alongside real life you may have heard a parable defined this way it's uh, an earthly story with a heavenly truth I understand that it's a story that communicates a a real eternal truth that is couched with the aroma of reality so that you can see how it's going, how it plays out, and you can begin to connect the dots. In this passage, Jesus tells a parable. It's three portraits, it's three pictures. You can say it's three stories, but it's one parable. Every story communicates the same truth. It reinforces the same point. Jesus is answering the question of why he associates with sinners. And in all three of these portraits, he gives the very same answer. He talks about a a shepherd who lost a sheep, a woman who lost a coin, a father who lost some sons. In the first story, it's a 1 to 100 ratio. In the second story, it's a 1 to 10 ratio. In the third story, it's a 2 for 2 
ratio. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Don't miss the dig in that. Jesus just called the high and mighty a low shepherd. Jesus just called the religious establishment the educated of the culture. Jesus just called a Pharisee a meager shepherd. We glamorize the life of a shepherd, but there was nothing glamorous about it in the Bible in the first century or beyond. There was nothing uh, attractive about being a shepherd. And most shepherds in the first century had a flock of about 200 sheep. Jesus does not even describe a wealthy shepherd. He says, suppose you are a, a meager shepherd. You got a hundred sheep. Automatically, the defenses would have gone up and they would have said, we don't own sheep. We're not shepherds. But Jesus said, let's suppose you have a hundred sheep. You lose one of them. Will you not leave the 90 and 9 in the open country and go and be obsessed with the search until you find that one lost sheep? The way Jesus asked the question in the original Greek language, he is begging for a positive response. The answer is, I would absolutely leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one lost sheep. And Jesus says, and when he finds it, he throws it over his shoulders and he goes back home, calls family and friends, says, rejoice with me, for I found my lost sheep. Jesus said in the very same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one person who repents than over 99 righteous persons who think they don't need to repent. Keep in mind, Jesus is answering the question why he associates with sinners. And the reason Jesus associates with sinners is because sinners are valuable to the Savior. Jesus is an equal opportunity storyteller. So in the second parable, or second portrait of the parable, second picture, second story, Jesus says there was a woman who had ten silver coins. These ten silver coins were very precious to her. She loses one of them. Will she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search it until she finds it? The implied answer is yes, she will. She'll become obsessed with the search until she finds it. She'll look in every corner, every nook, every cranny. She'll look in every cupboard, every closet, under the bed, on top of the dresser. She'll look everywhere until she finds it. Most people have assumed that tin silver set was her dowry, what she brought to the marriage. It may have been, may not have been. The word that Jesus used for coin is drachma. It's a coin that has some value, some significant monetary uh, tributation to it. Uh, but it's not an enormous amount of money. But this woman searches. She looks until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her family and friends and she says, rejoice with me for I found my lost coin. Jesus says in the same way, there'll be rejoicing in the heaven in front of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why does Jesus associate with sinners? Because sinners are valuable to the Savior. And Jesus knows 
that when sinners are found, they repent. The word repent, it does mean uh, to do a 180, to do a turnaround. It, it means to, to trust and to turn, to trust Jesus as Savior, to turn from your wicked ways. You cannot trust Jesus as Savior without turning. For if you trust Jesus as Savior, he will always nudge you, poke you, and prod you to turn from your wickedness. You cannot say, I trust Jesus and persist in disobedience. Now, where there is trusting, inevitably, there's always turning. And I'll say that you can't really turn without first trusting Jesus as Savior. So, Jesus says, when the lost are found, there's repentance. There's trusting and turning. And it always results in rejoicing. Always. Whenever a sinner is found, whenever the dead are alive, whenever uh, the lost person is retrieved, whenever that happens, there is repentance. And whenever there's genuine, authentic repentance, there is always rejoicing. Maybe you've lost a possession, you know, like a shepherd loses a sheep. Maybe you've lost some money before, like the woman who lost a coin. But have you ever lost a person? Have you ever lost a relationship? Have you ever lost a relationship that was so valuable and important to you? It's in this moment that Jesus shows us the third portrait of the parable. He raises the stakes. He drives home the point. There was a father who had two sons. And the father loved his sons. This dad did not play favorites. You know how some fathers play favorites. They have one child that they love a little bit more than the other child. Oh no, not this dad. He was unconditional in his compassion towards both of his sons. His level of love was unparalleled. He loved his boys. You can imagine the level of pain that he felt when his younger son came to him and said, Dad, give me my share of the estate. By those words, what he's saying is, Father, I wish you were already dead. I wish you would go in and give me what is rightfully mine, for I want to live as if you do not exist. I want to live far away from your rules and regulations, so Dad, give me what's coming to me. One of the amazing realities of the story is that the father actually grants the request of his son. It's a bone-crushing request. Jesus says that he divided his inheritance with both of them. According to Levitical law, the younger son would have been entitled to one-third of the estate. The older son would have been entitled to two-thirds of the estate. And in one fell swoop, the father granted his younger son his request by giving him a third of the estate. And by doing that, he also simultaneously is giving the older son two-thirds of the estate. Younger son liquidized his assets, took his newfound fortune, and off he went to a far country. I don't know how far a far country is, I just know it's a fur piece. It's far from home, it's far from the rules and regulations of daddy. The younger son lived it up. He had um, 
endless parties, numerous friends, hot women, and no accountability. Jesus says that he squandered his wealth in wild living. The word squander literally paints the picture of tossing one's resources to the wind. That's squandering. The word prodigal actually means wasteful. And so this prodigal was a squanderer. He tossed his possessions to the wind. He was wasteful with that blessing which had been given unto him. As long as he had money, life was fun and fast and carefree. But eventually the money ran out. And when the money ran out, so did the so-called friends. Now this young boy is alone. There are no friends, there are no parties, there are no hot women, nothing. He's starting to get hungry. To make matters worse, Jesus says, a famine strikes that land. You know, sometimes we suffer because of boneheaded decisions that we make. Sometimes we suffer because it's part and parcel with the human condition. It rains on the just and the unjust. Jesus portrays in this story that for this younger uh, son, both things happened at the same time. He had made some really stupid decisions in his life, and he was bearing the consequences of that. And there was a severe famine that came across the land, which would have crippled everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous. And now he's in dire straits. He's got to find a job. He's got to get some money. So he goes to the classified ads. He finds that there's a Gentile farmer who's hiring. He goes, and on the same day that he's interviewed, he's offered the job. And the farmer tells him to go feed pigs. When Jesus tells this story predominantly to a Jewish audience, there would have been a collective gasp. This is a description of a kid on Skid Row. I mean, you can't get much lower than this. For you and I both know that pigs were regarded as unclean animals. So this this young man who once lived in the lap of luxury, now uh, he's wasted all of his inheritance. He has nothing. He's starving to death. He's there working for a Gentile farmer, and not just any Gentile farmer, but a Gentile pig farmer. And now he's feeding the slop to the pigs, and he's so hungry that he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. You can't get any lower than this. You can't get any more disobedient than this. Eventually, Jesus says, he came to his senses. It hit him like a lightning bolt. Wait a minute. My father has hired men who have food to spare. And here I am starving to death. He concluded that probably undoubtedly, by his own actions, he had disqualified himself to be a son. But maybe, maybe he could be a servant. My father has servants with food to spare, and here I am starving to death. You would expect to find the word doulos for servant. That's the common word for a slave or a servant. But in this story, Jesus does not use the word doulos. He uses the word misthios, which misthios means a day laborer. It's the lowest man on the totem pole. It's even beneath a common servant or slave. And, and 
the younger son says, I know that I forfeited my right to be a son, but maybe I could be a mystios. i tell you what I'll do. I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me a mystios. Make me a hired servant. Or at least that will provide a roof over my head, a little bit of clothing on my back, and food on my table. He thought to himself, that sounds like a good idea. He knew his dad to be reasonable, logical, fair, and he thought to himself, that's a fair description, so he rehearsed his speech. He began to set off back towards the family farm. I'm sure with every step, he perfected the speech. You know, it's kind of like what you used to do. Uh, when you were sitting outside in your car after you were late for curfew and you know you needed to have to come up with something good to tell mom and dad as far as why you were late for your curfew so you just kind of rehearsed the speech over and over till you got up enough gumption to actually go inside and deliver the speech. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he rehearses the speech. He's mastered it. But Jesus says before he's even close to home, his father looks out over the horizon and he sees his son. He could recognize that stride anywhere. He could recognize the gait. He could recognize how he walked. He, he recognized the demeanor of that individual. He knew that was his son and the father filled with compassion. He ran to his son he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. When Jesus tells this story, this is an amazing story. Because in the first century, no patriarch was ever in a hurry in public. No father, no patriarch would ever dare be seen running in public. It's not dignified. Every patriarch had his own strut had his own swag. And so no patriarch would act as if he was in a hurry. He was always cool, calm, and collected. It wasn't dignified to run in public. Furthermore, it wasn't practical. You know, men in those days wore dresses. So in order for them to run, they'd have to hike up the extra fabric of the dress and kind of make their way. Nobody wants to do this in public. So no, no father, no, 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 no patriarch would ever be seen in a hurry. Yet Jesus says that this father throws the cultural norms to the wind. He hikes his skirt and he runs to his son. Now, by now, you obviously know that this father is reminiscent of God. That God the creator of the heavens and the earth is personified in this father. And I want you to know that this is the only place in all of the Bible where God is ever portrayed as running. 
There is no other place in the Old Testament. There's no other place in the New Testament. There is no other place where God is portrayed as being in a hurry. There's no other place where God is depicted as running. Yet here on the lips of Jesus, we find the most famous story that Jesus ever told. And on this story, he portrays God the Father. And God the Father is running. He's in a hurry. And why does God run? He runs after his children. Other places in the Bible, God walks. He walks with Adam in the cool of the day. Other places we are told that we are to be patient and wait on the Lord. And then eventually he will renew our strength. We have to wait on him because he's never in a hurry. He's never rushed. He's always on his time. He's always on time according to his cosmic clock. But he's never in a hurry. Yet in this story, God, for the first time and for the only time in all of sacred scripture, is described as running. He runs to his son. To say that he throws his arms around him is a misnomer because actually, according to the text, it says that he falls on his neck. Oh, the compassion. Oh, the love. He falls on the neck of his son, and he cannot stop kissing him. Eventually, the younger son's dad, 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 I've got to tell you, listen, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could get to the point where he says, make me a hired servant, the father says to the other servants that have been running with him stride for stride, quick, go get a robe, go get a ring, go get sandals. This father who runs, this God who cares, Jesus goes to great lengths and great extreme to communicate the compassion of the Father. Go get the boy's robe. He's family. You get his robe. That robe that probably was long sleeves all the way down to his wrists. The robe that probably went down to his ankles. You go get the family robe. You go put the robe on my boy. And get the ring, the ring that has the family crest on it. And you put sandals on his feet. There may be some servants running around that don't have shoes, but nobody in the family, because everybody in the family has shoes. What is the father communicating? He's saying to his son, you can't do anything to forfeit your sonship. There is nothing you can do to forfeit your status in the family. You're my boy and you'll always be my boy. You are my son and I love you. You can't do anything to make me love you less. You can't do anything that would disqualify you from being my boy. You can never lose the status of being my child. And then he orders the servant, kill the fattened calf. I want you to notice that he does not say fatten the calf. Had he said, fatten the calf, what the father would have been communicating would have been saying, I did not know if you were going to come back. I did not know if I would ever find you. But now that I've found you, now that I have wrapped my arms around you, now we need to fatten the calf and make preparation for a party because my boy has come back home. Oh no, the father did not say, fatten the calf. The father said, kill the fattened calf because son, all the time you've been gone, I've been fattening the calf. I knew I was going to find you. I 
I knew that I was going to retrieve you. I knew I was going to redeem you. And I knew that day would come and we would have a party. And the preparation has to already be made. So I want you to kill the fattened calf. It's already ready for slaughter. Because we're going to have a party tonight. And there's enough food here to feed the entire village. Can I say a word to mom and moms and dads? There may be some parents here who have some prodigal sons and daughters. And they may still be in the far country. You raised them right, but they broke your heart. They came to you in some semblance of way to say, I wish you were dead. I want to live my life as if you and your rules and regulations and your God doesn't exist. And they've gone off to the far country. And they're still out there. They haven't come home yet. Mom and dad, keep fattening the calf. Keep fattening the calf. Because one day, they just might pop over the horizon. And when they come home, there will be a celebration. There will be a party. So you keep praying. You keep preparing. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. You keep fattening the calf. Because the prodigal just might pop over the horizon. The father threw a party. <laughs> and it was a great party. Everybody was there. But you remember in this third portrait, Jesus says that a father had two sons. The older son was still in the field. He never left the family farm. He came up and he heard the music and he saw the dancing in the distance. He called one of the field servants and he said, what is going on up there? He said, your brother's come back home and your dad has ordered for the slaughtering of the fattened calf. And the whole town is here and they're all celebrating. Don't you think you need to get in there? That statement is implied in the conversation. The servant would have been very polite in it, but by the servant implying, uh, older brother, don't you need to be in there? If you had a party like this in the first century, the eldest son had the responsibility of acting as the host or the maitre d'. He was the one who was supposed to welcome all the guests. Older brother, don't you need to go in? Don't, don't you need to get dressed? Don't you need to welcome all of the visitors in your father's house? And the older son became angry. He refused to go in. We are told that the father went to him and pleaded with him. Now you might expect the father to reprimand the older son. You might expect him to uh, tell him to clean up and show up and get in there and do his job. But the father treats the older son the same way he treated the younger son. Your version probably has a G-rated version of the literal text. It probably says that the father went to the son. He ran to the son. 
It's the same kind of verbiage. It's the same kind of vocabulary. The same portrait of what God does to the younger son as God runs to the uh, younger son. God also runs to the older son. The father runs to him and he pleads with him. Why? Because the only thing that gets God in a hurry is when he runs after his children. He is portrayed as the hound of heaven and he pursues us whether we're religious or a reprobate, whether we're older or we're younger. God treats all of us the same. He pursues us the father ran to his uh, older son and he pleaded with him he urged him to come in the older son said look dad i've been slaving here for years i've never disobeyed you i've never left the family farm i've always been here for you yet you never gave me one goat that I could slaughter and celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours shows up, who has squandered your wealth with prostitutes, when he comes home, you act like a fool. You act like an idiot. You dote all over him. You've made us a laughing stock in all the village. When this son of yours comes home, you throw a party for him. I don't know how the older brother knew that his younger brother had wasted tossed possessions to the wind with prostitutes maybe this was already the word on the street maybe it's something that the older brother had heard second third fourth hand but when he got chance to talk to his dad he blasted the father you are making us a laughing stock you are giving kindness to somebody who does not deserve it he has defamed your name. He doesn't deserve your kindness. And the father said, son, my son, everything I have is yours. No truer statement has been told in this entire story. Because when the father gave the inheritance to his two sons. He gave a third of it to the younger and two-thirds of it to the older. So when the father says, everything I have, everything you see here at the family farm, it all belongs to you, that's a true statement. It does all belong to the older son. Everything I have belongs to you. But we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead, was alive again. He's lost and now he's found. My friend, don't miss the point. The point of the third parable is the same as the point of the second uh, story or the first story. The whole parable has one overarching point. Jesus is answering the question, why does he associate with sinners? The answer is because sinners are valuable to the Savior. Keep in mind that Jesus is talking to Pharisees, religious people. When he gets to this third picture, it's very clear that those Pharisees are portrayed as the older brother. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, the drunkards, the thieves, the crooks, those are the younger brother. And the Pharisees are asking the question, Jesus, why do you embrace those sinners? Why do you look over them and dote over them? Why do you extend fellowship unto them? Why do you give them some level of acceptability? Why do you give them so much kindness? And the answer is, because I love sinners. They are valuable to me, Jesus says. But they are no more valuable than you are. 
Because God loves all of His children. Religious, reprobate. Those in the far country, those who have never left the family farm. This is a story of enormous grace. God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But because God is rich in mercy, He's made us alive in Christ Jesus, though we are dead in our sins. It is by grace that we have been saved. All the love that God has lavished upon us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Philip Yancey accurately points out that there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than He already does. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than He already does. God's love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on His person. That is so relieving, my friend. You don't have to perform to earn the love of God. God just loves you. He loves you with an infinite, never giving up, never stopping kind of love. This love is ginormous. He loves you for all time and eternity. God loves His children. And so what what the father says to both of his sons is, I want you to come home. What is home? I'll tell you what home is. Home is the place where grace and repentance embrace. That's home. Home is the place where grace and repentance embrace. Whenever the lost are found, there is always repentance, and that repentance will always lead to rejoicing. Because God is calling all of us, come home. Where grace and repentance embrace. I wonder how the story ends, don't you? I wonder if the older brother was reconciled to dad, reconciled to his younger brother, reconciled to family and neighbors, and I wonder if he went in and took his rightful place as the host of the party. Or I wonder if he stayed in the field in anger, frustration, and resentment, and refused to go in. I wonder how the story ends. Jesus tells this glorious singular parable and He leaves it open-ended as if He's inviting you and me to finish the story. So let me ask you, how does it end? Do you go in? Do you rejoice? Or do you refuse in defiance and persist in disobedience? I've been told that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. You look into the pages of Scripture and you find people that look just like you. So this morning, let me ask you, who do you look like according to this third story of this great parable? Do you look more like the older brother or the younger brother? Do you look more like the one who has squandered blessings of God? You have skeletons in your closet. You're far away from the Lord, but you've heard the good news of the gospel that God loves you, and you've responded to that, and you've discovered a God who falls on your neck and kisses you and says to you, you can't do anything that would forfeit your right to be my son or my daughter. You come on home, and you discover that home is a place where grace and repentance embrace. I wonder how many younger uh, brothers and sisters there are in the house today but I wonder how many older brothers and sisters are in the house today people who say you know what I, I've never ventured far from the family farm I was raised in church I'm not perfect nobody's perfect but I never went to the far country and did far country kind of things and every time one of those younger siblings comes home and receives grace 
I stand there and I clap, but I don't like it. Because deep down, I'm a little bit resentful. Why did they get to go off and have a good time and I didn't? And the truth be told, I'm, I clap and I say I rejoice that they're coming to God, but I wonder why did God waste his grace on him? Why did God waste his grace on her? I wonder how many older brothers and sisters, how many younger brothers and sisters are in the crowd today? Truth of the matter is that we're probably a hybrid of both, aren't we? There are times when we look like the younger brother. There are times when we look like the older brother. You know what I've discovered after 15 years of pastoral ministry? That when a sinner comes to faith in Christ, they can identify with that younger brother, but you put them in church for very long and somehow they morph. And they transform into an older brother. You've got to guard your heart against the sin of the older brother. Today, I want you to see God as He is portrayed in this story. One who runs to you. Whether you're older, whether you're younger, whether you're close to home or in the far country, God runs to you. He doesn't run for anything else, but He runs for you. And He runs to you and He says to you, I want you to come home. What is home? Home is the place where grace and repentance embrace. So my friend, I want you this morning. I invite you this morning. I plead with you this morning. Let's just come home. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. You have your way to retrieve younger prodigals, to retrieve older brothers, those who are far from you, those who are still on the family farm, regardless of where we are, Lord Jesus, help us to come home and find ourselves embraced by grace and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.